We know what everybody's thinking about this morning at the new year, right? Losing weight. And I was going to preach on New Year's resolutions and losing weight and all of those things, but I figured that may not go over real well uh, since you're already thinking about it. Um, But obviously we are thinking about resolutions um, as we come into the new year. Uh, Option two was Jonathan Edwards' resolutions, but he had 70. And I haven't preached in in a church context in three months, so I was tempted to cover all 70 because I have a lot of pent-up preaching inside of me, but I thought that wouldn't go over too well. So I asked myself, like, what is the most important? Like, we're going to have one resolution this morning. We're going to have one resolution for 2023 and really for the rest of our life. What is the most important thing? And thankfully, the Bible gives us the answer. The Bible always seems to have the answers, doesn't it? And it gives us the answer. See, a lawyer came to Jesus, and he said, Master, what is the first and the greatest commandment? Now, we in the South, we have this saying that all sin is the same in the eyes of God. And there is no chapter and verse for that because that is not true. All sin is not the same in the eyes of God. All sin is sin, and all sin condemns, but all sin is not the same in the eyes of God, or Jesus would have said, oh, they're all the same. He didn't say they were all the same. He said there is a first and a greatest commandment. And the first and the greatest commandment is this, that you should love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, And with all of your strength, there is no greater commandment. So if this is the first and greatest commandment, if this is the most important thing for us today, then this should be our first and most prioritized resolution for 2023 and for the rest of our lives, right? To love God more, to be passionate for and increasing in affection for Jesus Christ. And what better text in God's Word to wake us up from our slumber than Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. I hope you have your Bible. If you do, turn to Revelation chapter 2. John, the disciple John, has been exiled to the Isle of Patmos. The Lord's Day comes around. He's in the Spirit And he begins to get a message from God that he records for us in this last book of the Bible, Revelation. And in Revelation 2 and 3, he writes down seven letters to seven churches. Seven different letters to seven different churches. Now, what we tend to do, we tend to treat these letters like they are some type of prophetic mystery that we need to uncover in order to understand world history. Or there's some prophetic mystery that we need to uncover in order to understand the end of time. And this is unfortunate because this keeps us, approaching these letters this way, keeps us from feeling the weight of these words for us. 
And it keeps us from feeling the weight of these words for us today in 2023. I want to propose to you this morning that we should understand these seven letters in Revelation and this letter to the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2 this morning, just like we understand Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus that we call Ephesians. I want to propose to you that we should read the letters of Revelation the same way we read the other epistles or the other letters in the New Testament as direct letters written to specific churches that carry timeless truths to all churches throughout all ages. And the timeless truth that stands out in this passage of Scripture in Revelation chapter 2 verses 1 to 7 is the importance of obeying the greatest commandment. It is the importance of loving Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 2 beginning in verse 1, and I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. Don't tell Dr. Greg that it's not the ESV. <laughs> but you can tell him that this is the best translation. Revelation chapter 2, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. And you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. We see four main lessons in our text this morning. The first thing we see is Jesus's love and care for the church. Jesus's love and care particularly for this church, the church at Ephesus. Look at what it says in verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write. And we might automatically think that this church has a heavenly angel watching over it or a heavenly angel there responsible to care for it and to be present with it. And I guess that is a possibility, but the word here translated angel and in the English Standard Version as angel can also be translated messenger, messenger. So this word could not be referring to a heavenly angel or a heavenly messenger, but to a messenger there in the church who is primarily responsible for communicating God's Word to the people. And that is the way I take this text, not as a heavenly being, but as the messenger, the pastor, the preacher, the one who delivers the Word of God to this church. And why? Because why would Jesus go through John to give a message to an angel? 
Number two, as we read the other letters in the New Testament, none of them are addressed to the angels of churches. They are addressed to the elders of the churches. So what I believe here is that this message that is coming for this church is to the angel or the messenger or the one who delivers the word of God to the church. And notice who is dictating this message. He says, do the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. The one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this. Now it's getting a little odd here, right? But we are in Revelation. So we would expect it to get a little bit interesting. We have someone here who's speaking to John who holds in his right hand seven stars and who is walking among seven golden lampstands. Who is this one who holds the seven stars? Who are these seven stars? Who is the one walking among these golden lampstands? What are these golden lampstands? Well, the Bible is really glad we ask because it has the answer. If you look back on chapter 1, maybe just over a page, and look in verse number 12. Look at what we find. John has been caught up in the Spirit. He's getting this message from the Lord, and he's, giving a, he's being given a message for seven churches. And in verse 12, after he hears this voice, it says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. There they are. There are the seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, there's one in the midst of the lampstands. In the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like wool, wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. This is an amazing person. This is an amazing being here in the midst of the lampstands holding the seven stars. Verse 17 says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Who is this one in the midst of the lampstands? It is the Lord Jesus Christ, clothed in white robes with white hair, burning eyes, a two-edged sword coming forth from his mouth, feet like burnished bronze, voices, a voice like many waters, the first and the last, the one who has been dead and who is now alive forevermore. Verse 19, he says, Therefore write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven 
churches. So there's the answer to the mystery. There's the answer to our question. Who is the one who is standing in the midst of the lampstands? It is the Lord Jesus Christ. What are these seven stars that he has in his hand? They are the angels of the churches or the messengers of the churches or the one who delivers the word of God to the churches. What are the lampstands? The lampstands are the churches. And here I want you to see the love and the care that Jesus has for this church and for the church. He walks in the midst of the lampstands. Think about that this morning. We're not here to sing praise to. We are not here to pray to. We're not here to speak about one who is far away. We are here to sing to, praise to, pray to, and talk about one who is very near, Emmanuel, God with us, who is walking in the midst of his lampstand. He's walking in the midst of his church. He is here this morning. And he was with the church at Ephesus. He was there. And not only was he there, but he was holding in his hand the angel of the church, the messenger of the church. He holds in his hand the elders, the leaders, the pastors of the church. And he is speaking. He is speaking here to the church. What love and care that Jesus himself walks among his churches, holds the leaders in his hand, speaks to them. This is a love and care for the church. And I want you to think specifically about the love and care that he had for the church at Ephesus. Think about the history of this church. The history of this church. The Apostle Paul, most likely on his second missionary journey, planted the church at Ephesus. Imagine if you could stand up here this morning and say, well, we started back when the Apostle Paul came through. That's a legacy, isn't it? I mean, you've got the pastor's pictures hanging up on the wall there, and there's Paul, the first one. Like, you're not going to stop any of these other guys. You're going to be like, looking at Paul every Sunday. Paul started the church. On his third missionary journey, Paul stops in again at the church at Ephesus, and there he spends two to three years with the church there. As far as we know, that's his longest tenure anywhere. Two to three years with the church at Ephesus. Then on his way to Rome, where he will be imprisoned, he stops again and he calls the elders of the church of Ephesus to him, and he gives them one last admonition. He ends up in Rome, he goes to prison, and he writes a letter to the church at Ephesus. Are you seeing... God's love and care for this church. Then Paul sends his son in the faith, Timothy, to minister to this church. And then get this. History says that John, the disciple, who's writing the book of Revelation, who's writing this letter from Jesus to the church at Ephesus. History says that John, who had been given care of Jesus' mother at the cross, ends up before his exile to Patmos and after his exile to Patmos, being a part of the church at Ephesus and often admonishing them there. You want to talk about a legacy. You want to talk about a church with history, a church that's been planted by Paul, ministered to by Paul, written to by Paul, led by Timothy, influenced by John the disciple himself. This is the church in town. And this is the special love and care that Jesus has for this church, the church at Ephesus. 
We read on in verses 2 and 3, and we not only see Jesus' love and care for this church, but we see Jesus' praise and affirmation of this church. Pay attention to how this church is described. Just, just imagine with me, if you will, we pull up Ephesus Baptist Church's website. This is, what, this is what characterizes them right here. First of all, they were devoted. They were devoted. Verse 2 says, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance or your steadfastness. You look at this church and you see a church that is busy. They're working hard. Jesus sees their deeds and what they're doing. And he says, thumbs up. He sees their toil and how hard they're working for him. They're plowing, they're planting, they're watering, they're harvesting, they're laboring. Good job. He sees them persevering and being steadfast, even amidst a difficulty. He says, good job. This is a devoted church. This is a church that's not hypocritical. This is a church that is working hard and busy for the kingdom of God and not throwing in the towel. They were devoted, but not only were they devoted, but they were also discerning. If you go on in verse 2, I know your deeds, your toil, your perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. They're not just randomly sharing TV preachers' posts on Facebook. They're they're looking at this in light of Scripture to see, is this truth? Is this legitimate? And they're able to separate the wheat from the chaff. They're able to separate the sheep from the goats. They're able to separate the true from the false. They are discerning. They're doctrinally sound in their theology. And in verse 3, they're determined. He says, you have perseverance. You've endured for my name's sake. and have not grown weary. Apparently, they have suffered. Maybe they've suffered persecution at the hand of the Jews. Maybe they've suffered persecution at the hand of the Romans. They've, they've struggled. And they've not given up. They've persevered. They've continued through adversity. They endured suffering for Christ, and they persevered standing firm. Listen, this is a solid church. This is a church you want to join in town. This is a church where you're going to see people working for the kingdom, investing in the kingdom. You're going to see people teaching truth, believing truth, and separating truth from error. And you're going to see people who are not throwing in the towel easily. They are persevering in the faith. This is the kind of church we want to be a part of. Amen? And Jesus says, good job. But then verse 4 has a really big three-letter word. But. But. There's a bigger three-letter word coming. So just be patient through the bad news. Right now he says, but. I have given you special love and care. Like no other church that I know of. You are working hard. You're believing right. You're staying the course. But I have this against you. And here we see Jesus' rebuke and warning to the church. I have this against you. That you have left your first love. 
Therefore, remember from where you've fallen. Repent, do the deeds you did at first, or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Now, if you've looked at the seven churches of Revelation, it doesn't take a theology degree from a seminary to realize Ephesus is the best one in the list, as far as we're concerned. I mean, if you read about these other churches, these churches have idolatry. These churches have adultery. These churches have false teaching. These churches have sin. And we read this about the church at Ephesus and we think they are the best church. They've got it together. They seem to be the one most in line with what is most important. But now Jesus comes to them and says, I've got something against you. You've left your first love. You see, there's a problem. There's a problem. And the problem is we can do everything right outwardly and we can fool everyone around us because no one can see our heart. And the problem is Jesus can see the heart. And he sees this church at Ephesus doing everything right outwardly. And he says, I've got a major problem with you, Ephesus. You have left your first love. And how do we know this is such a big deal to Jesus? Because Jesus says, unless you repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand. What are the lampstands? What are the lampstands? The churches. What is Jesus threatening them with? He said, if you don't fall back in love with me, I will shut your doors. Preach the truth. Believe the truth. Work so hard that you think the town couldn't make it without you. But if you don't fall in love with me, and fall back in love with me real quick, I will shut you down. That's pretty serious, isn't it? Especially when you read about the churches in Revelation that are caught up in idolatry and adultery and false teaching and sin, and Jesus never threatens any of the other six churches with removing their lampstand. None of the other churches get threatened with their doors being closed. Just this one. And there was one problem, just one problem. Love. Love for him. They had fallen out of love with Jesus. They were doing and believing right, but they were not feeling right. Please don't miss this. Please don't miss this. The very center of this relationship with God in Christ the very center of this relationship with God in Christ is the heart, the affections, the feelings. True conversion is not just, just something intellectual. It is intellectual, but it's not just intellectual. True conversion is supernatural. The heart is changed. You're not born a Christian. You have to be converted. And conversion is supernatural. It is a change of the heart. No supernatural power whatsoever is necessary to recite a sinner's prayer. 
We could line up every seven-year-old in this church right now and say, you want to go to hell and burn forever? No, sir. Repeat this prayer after me. They'd all repeat it. Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. No supernatural power required whatsoever. No supernatural power required to fill out a card at a crusade. No supernatural power required to walk down an aisle. No supernatural power to go over to the first steps room and say, I want to join the church. No supernatural power required to attend church. Maybe on New Year's Day after New Year's Eve, some supernatural power is required to get to church. But for the most part, no supernatural power required to come in and sit down in church, bring your Bible, sing some songs, listen to the sermon, take some notes, walk out, and go home. Those things are good. They just don't prove that anything supernatural or spiritual has happened. Those things are good, but they just don't prove anything supernatural or spiritual has happened. The evidence of salvation, the evidence of conversion is not just new decisions, but new affections, new feelings, a new heart. Ezekiel 36, 26 says, I will give you a new heart. And I will put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That's supernatural. Amen? That's what we're looking for. That's what Jesus is looking for at Ephesus. Not just doing the right thing and believing the right thing, but feeling the right thing. And to feel the right thing, something supernatural has to happen. And you have to be given a new heart and a new spirit. The very center of this relationship with God in Christ is the heart, the affections, the feelings. And now ask yourself this question as we look at this new year. Are you passionate for and increasing in affection for Jesus Christ? It's the most important thing. We just time out here in Revelation and think back to Matthew chapter 15 where Jesus encounters Pharisees. And in Matthew chapter 15, verses 7 and 8, listen to what he says. Don't just think about this verse because they're reflecting what we're talking about. Matthew 15, 7 and 8, he says, You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. Notice what he says. Their hearts are far away from him. Not just away from him, not just separated from him, but far away from him. And since this is presented in a negative light, we can presume that if it's negative, if it's bad for their hearts to be far away from him, in order for it to be good and positive, their hearts need to be near him, right? Wrong, wrong. They need to be very near him. It's bad for their hearts to be far away. It's good for their hearts to be very near him. Where is your heart this morning? Where's your affection this morning? Is it very near him? If it's not, you're on dangerous ground. 
Think about Peter. Let's just think about Peter for a moment. In the garden with Jesus, right before Jesus is betrayed, Peter says, I will never deny you. Remember? Not me, Jesus. And he goes to the garden, and they come to arrest Jesus, and what does he do? He pull, Peter pulls his sword, and he takes a shot at one of the servants, and he's, he cuts off the servant's ear. Now listen, Peter was a loose cannon. We know that. That's why we like him, right? Peter, Peter was a loose cannon. But Peter wasn't trying to cut this guy's ear off. Come on. He was a fisherman, not a swordsman. He was trying to get him where it counted. He was trying to cut his throat. And either the guy missed or Peter missed. The guy moved or Peter missed or something happened and he got his ear. He's, he's loyal to Jesus, isn't he? And then Jesus is arrested. And as we continue to read the narrative, there's a verse that stands out. Now, you may not have ever noticed it, but this is what it says. As they arrested Jesus, and they were taking him away, it said, Peter followed at a distance. Now, he just pledged his loyalty to Jesus. He just tried to kill a man for Jesus. To protect Jesus. And now, he's following Jesus at a distance. He's following him. He's following him. But he's following at a distance. And maybe this morning as you are in this room, you look at your life and you say, you know, I'm following Jesus. But you realize this morning that maybe you're following him at a distance from where you were following him. You're on the wrong trajectory. You're in a dangerous place because Peter went from defending Jesus to following Jesus at a distance. And then just a few verses later, there's a servant girl who says, you were also one of his disciples, weren't you? And Peter said, not me. And then someone else, and he says, not me. And then someone else asks, and then he curses and says, not me. He swears, not me. And the rooster crows. Wow. Talk about falling off the wagon. Jesus is crucified, buried, resurrected. Comes and finds Peter on the seashore. And you know how he restores Peter? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? More than these? More than these fish? Peter, do you love me? Do you see a theme here that Jesus is concerned with? It's love. Peter, you won't follow at a distance if you love me. Peter, you won't deny me if you love me. These Pharisees, these hypocrites, their hearts are far away from Jesus. And, and if we are not very near Jesus, we're on dangerous ground this morning. He said, you hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. Me? Don't leave out that little word, me. Because those Jews would have stood up and testified that their heart beat for Jerusalem. And Jesus would have said, Amen. They would have said, our heart beats for the temple. Amen. Our heart beats for the law. Amen. For sacrifice, for the Sabbath. Amen. 
but not for me. Our hearts can beat for all kinds of wonderful things. Your heart may beat for Marson Heights Baptist Church. You may get up on Sunday morning just giddy in your heart and in your spirit to come here to worship. Your heart may beat for the songs that we sing. Your heart may beat for the sermons that you hear. Your heart may beat for your life group. Your heart may beat for your ministry that you're involved in. Your heart may beat for all of these good things. But if our hearts are not beating for Jesus, we're missing something. No, we're missing everything. All of these things, listen, all of these things are a means to the end. They're, they're not the end themselves. They're a means to the end, which is love for Christ and affection for Christ and intimacy with Christ. And if we take our eyes off of Christ and we start putting our eyes and our hearts and our affections on these things, we start worshiping the means and missing the ends. Don't fall in love with the means and miss the ends. The end is Christ. Love God with all of your heart, all of your soul, your mind, and your strength. All of their hearts are to be reserved for Christ. He's the treasure we're to be most passionate about securing. Do you remember the parable Jesus told back in Matthew 13? The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Imagine, imagine this guy stumbling in a barren field upon a treasure and he finds it and he hides it. And then he goes and sells his house. He sells his car. He sells his phones. He sells his computers. He sells his clothes. He sells everything he has. And people are saying, What's, what are you doing? He says, I want to buy that barren field. And that field's useless. Why are you selling everything to buy that field? Well, he knows something. He knows something's in that field that, that is far more valuable than anything and everything he's ever owned. Jesus is the treasure. And he's worth everything. He is the end of our search, not the means to some further end. Our joy is the Lord, not the streets of gold, not the reunion with relatives, not any blessing of heaven, not even the means here. Our joy is the Lord. God is not a key that unlocks a treasure chest of gold and silver. He is the treasure. You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. They honored God with their lips. Their words were strong. Maybe even their lives honored God. No one questioned their loyalty to God, their religion. They said all the right things. They did all the right things. They refrained from the wrong things, but their heart was elsewhere. Where's your heart today? If we're not increasing in affection for Christ this morning, we are in a very dangerous place. But not in a place without hope, which leads to our last point in verses 6 and 7. A point of hope and promise for the church. Verse 6 begins with a big three-letter word, and one we should be happy is there, yet. 
yet. Listen, you guys, you have a great history. You have good doctrine, good works. You're persevering, but you've got a major problem. You don't love me like you once loved me, and I'm going to shut you down if something doesn't change. Yet, yet, there's hope and promise for the church. Yet this you do have. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We're on the same team here. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. There's hope for those with an ear to hear this morning. There's hope for the one who overcomes. And how do we overcome? Back up in verse 5, he says, remember from where you've fallen. Repent and do the deeds you did at first. Or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand from its place. We remember and we repent. We remember and we repent. Let me ask you two questions as we draw things to a close. As we think about resolving this year to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. To fall back in love with Jesus if we're not in love with Him. Ask yourself this question. What is it? that drains your affections for God? What is it that drains your affection for God? And you probably know what it is. And for most of you, it's probably either a television, a computer screen, or in most cases, a cell phone. You do realize that we can't drive, walk, carry on a conversation have a meal, watch a movie, do anything anymore without a cell phone open in our face. Snapping, Instaing, Facebooking, Facebook marketplacing, YouTubing. I'm just being honest. What is it that drains your affection for God? I don't have time to read the Bible. I don't have time to pray. I don't have the energy to do those things. But we can scroll mindlessly for hours on end. Listen, if you're going to love Jesus, if you're going to love Jesus like Jesus commands to be loved, you are going to have to be the exception in our culture. Because everything, everything is clamoring for your love and everything is clamoring for your affection and your attention. And if you are willing to give your love and your affection and your attention to a little four by three screen rather than almighty sovereign God, then it's simply because you don't love him as much as your social media accounts. There's no sense in beating around the bush this morning. You don't love him as much as you love your Fox News broadcast. You don't love him as much as you love your unrealist, I mean reality, I almost said unreality TV. That'd be more accurate, wouldn't it? Unreality TV show. All those things are jealous little gods that clamor for your attention. But I'm going to tell you something, we have a jealous big God. And he will not tolerate it. So I want to appeal to you, plead with you, beg you, this morning, to ask yourself, what is it that is crowding out Jesus? What is it that is robbing you and draining you of your affection for God? And put it to death. Be the exception. Second question I want to ask is, what is it that fuels your affections for God? 
Find out what it is that fuels your affection for God and feed that and increase that. Richard Baxter, Puritan pastor, said, If you lack light and heat, why are you not more in the sunshine? If you would have more of that grace that flows from Christ, why are you not more with Christ? You want to know what fuels your affection for Jesus? Being with Jesus. Being in the Word to encounter Jesus. Not just check off a Bible reading plan, but to encounter Jesus. Being in prayer to encounter Jesus. Not just to check off a spiritual discipline, but to be with Jesus. Fellowshipping together with other believers. Not just to be with other believers, but to be with Jesus. Find out what fuels your affections and feed that. And let me just end here Baxter said this, nothing will enliven our love for God more than our belief of his love to us. You hear that? Nothing will stir your affection and enliven your love for God more than believing his love for you. And the greatest display of his love that he could ever ever show us he did when the fullness of time came and he sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law to redeem those who were held captive by the law you see we serve a God who demands and requires us to be perfectly holy as he is holy that's why you get into heaven Perfection, buddy. Sinless perfection. There's a big problem with that, isn't there? Because there's a verse in the Bible that says, for all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God or come short of God's glorious standard. To get into heaven, you have to be perfect. The problem is there's nobody in this room or on this earth that's perfect. We have all sinned. We've all fallen short. We are all hopeless and helpless. Send us all the rules you want. Send us all the laws you want. Send us all the religions you want. We are hopeless and helpless. But God, but God who is love, didn't send us a list of rules and regulations. He didn't send us a bunch of religion. You know what God did? He humbled himself. And took on the form of a servant. Born in a manger. In a dusty, dirty town called Bethlehem. To live a perfect, sinless, righteous, spotless life. The life that he requires and demands us to live. He came to live. And not only did he live the perfect, sinless, spotless, righteous life. But he went to a cross. And there on the cross, God the Father poured out on him our sin. And there God judged our sin in Christ on that cross until Jesus said, it is finished. He was buried in a borrowed tomb and on Sunday morning he rose from the grave bodily, victorious, triumphant over death, hell, and the grave so that every person under the sound of my voice who would turn away from their sin, their old affections, their old attitudes, their old actions, and put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ alone can be made perfect. They can be made sinless. They can be made righteous and right with God. Just imagine with me 
You've all done this, especially you college kids. You know how to copy, cut, and paste, plagiarize, right? You know how to copy, cut, and paste into a paper. Imagine with me this, that God pulls up our account. He needs to see perfect holiness to let us in. It ain't there. But he takes the perfect, righteous account of Jesus, and he copies it, and he pastes it into our account. And he takes our account, our debts, our sin, and he copies it, and he cuts it, and he pastes it upon Jesus. So that when we stand before him and he opens our account, he doesn't see our debts, they've been paid in Christ, but he sees the perfect, righteous record of Jesus. You want to fall in love with God? You want your affections for God to increase? Think on the way he loves you that he came to this earth and lived the life he requires of you and died the death your sin deserves. And turn away from all of this that clamors for our attention. And fix your eyes upon Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and His grace. Let's love Jesus this year. Father, we thank You for Your grace. We thank You for Your grace displayed in the fact that You came, Emmanuel, God with us, to live a sinless life in our place and to die a gruesome death in our place so that we could be made right and perfect before You and that we could have peace with you. Thank you for your love for us. Help us in the midst of doing right and believing right to feel right and to love you more this year, to do whatever it takes, to cut off whatever needs to be cut off, to put out whatever needs to be put out, to put to death whatever needs to be put to death that drains our affection for you and help us to fuel our affections for you this year as we seek to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.